0: Advent series for December. It's based on the titles of Jesus as spoken in Isaiah chapter 9. So I want to encourage you to turn there and look at two verses. There was also a second passage that we'll cover in just a short bit. It was assigned for this week. So Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and 7 is what we're going to read today. And would you stand as we read God's holy word. For to us a child is born. We'll do this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this promise. This promise that was given long before the Messiah, long before Christ, and something that your people looked forward to, and then the light dawned. Christ came, the Word made flesh, the wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We thank you for what all of those mean to us in our lives, and we thank you for your Word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, these are wonderful, majestic, expansive titles as we see here in Isaiah chapter 9. And today we're going to look at that first one, Wonderful Counselor. And you might use the word wonderful fairly often. I think usually I use it when I'm exceptionally pleased with something and I would say something along the line of, That's wonderful. Maybe that's what you use that word for as well. But the word translated wonderful in Isaiah chapter 9 is the word pelech, which usually means extraordinary, even miraculous. In fact, one of the words for miracle in the Old Testament is the main form of this Hebrew word in the noun form. And it's why you'll often see the phrase signs and wonders in the Old Testament. So the council, what we're being told is the council... That the child to be born will provide, will be extraordinary, miraculous counsel. There's another aspect to the word perech, which also belongs in our understanding of wonderful. It's not just that it's extraordinary in the sense of miraculous and extraordinary, but it's also astonishing or surprising. And so, for example, we sometimes say that we are filled with wonder, When we are speechless or stunned over something. And last, this word in Hebrew can also have the the shade of meaning that is incomprehensible. So for example, in Judges uh, chapter 13, verse 17 and 18, we see the passage of Manoah, the father of Samson, when he's told that Samson is to be the deliverer of Israel, he asks the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing that it is wonderful. And what he's saying in that moment is, why do you ask my name when it's really beyond your ability to understand and fully comprehend? So Jesus is a wonderful counselor in all of those senses. He is His counsel is marvelous, it is pleasant, but it's also amazing, stunning, it is vast. And since the word wonderful is is used exclusively of God or God's works in the Old Testament, we could also say that Jesus' counsel is divine. Now, did Jesus claim to have that kind of counsel, this wonderful counsel? Did the apostolic authors claim that for him as well? Well, in an interesting passage in Luke 11, Jesus said this to the crowds around him. He said, this is an evil generation it seeks a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed A greater than Solomon is here. So one greater than Solomon is here. That's what Jesus says. Why mention Solomon? Why mention the queen of the south, which was the queen of Sheba? Because the queen, as Jesus alludes to, travels this long distance, right? All the way from the south, region that is now Ethiopia, goes all the way north into the land of Israel, to hear from the man who was said to be the wisest in the world, or the wisest that had yet lived, according to Scripture. And Jesus is saying that the wisdom that he imparted and was going to impart was greater. It was evident from the beginning that Jesus was different. Luke chapter 1 describes how Mary and Joseph Discovering that their son was missing. You can imagine what that was like as they're returning home from Jerusalem. Here they've just come down to the Passover. And you know the city is swollen to the size of six, seven times its normal population. People camping out on the streets and wherever they can. Uh, as they celebrate the Passover, usually you win as a group. Especially for the kids so you didn't lose them. So you can imagine uh, after three days it says they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions and all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers so we that is a mark of Christ from the very beginning this wisdom this treasury of knowledge and in our second assigned passage for the morning in Colossians 2 Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that lay at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. For their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And then this is an important part. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So even the apostolic authors, uh, someone like Paul would say that hidden in Christ were all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. An important question today is, do you believe that about Jesus? Do you believe that he has the answers to all of your questions? Or do you find yourself misled through what Paul describes as plausible arguments of those who give false or contrary counsel? In a later passage of Isaiah, Isaiah 11, God reveals more about the Messiah who was Jesus to come. He says of him, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, the breath of his lips, kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So we see in Christ the spirit of wisdom spirit of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Now in these two passages, in Colossians and Isaiah, we see more of what makes Jesus' counsel so wonderful. In Colossians 2, looking at that again, the phrase plausible arguments we see there. And and in the ESV, it's, uh, well, in the King James Version, the New King James Version, it's the persuasive words is what we find there and what are these persuasive plausible words and arguments well in the remainder of that chapter in in chapter 2 Paul condemns traditions of men he condemns worldly principles he condemns the fact that the Judaizers are trying to introduce legalism back into the church and Paul says it's such a These things have an appearance, he says, indeed, an appearance of wisdom, in self-imposed religion, in false humility, in neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Those were the plausible arguments that Paul is talking about that were counter to the counsel of Christ. And so we see that part of what makes Jesus' counsel so wonderful is that it is based upon the grace of God that leads actually to liberty and to abundant life rather than upon the worldly principles of man that can be so deceptively persuasive but actually lead to death. And then the Isaiah passage, as it speaks about Jesus, says that he shall not judge by appearance. How often do we judge by appearance? And kind of, in our own minds, fill in the blanks, right? For what people are thinking and what they're motivated by. And and not only that, how often do we judge with a bias? How often does the world judge with a bias that favors the influential and the wealthy and the powerful? Well, Jesus' counsel was completely counterintuitive to that type of thinking. He would say, blessed are those who mourn in, in Matthew 5, 4. Rejoice and be glad in persecution, he says in Matthew 5.11. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And because his truths are so counterintuitive, often contrary to man's unjust tendencies, because they go against the persuasive philosophies of men, how else will we know the mind of God except through him? And that's why passages like these next ones are so encouraging. For example, John 1, 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, He, Jesus, has made Him known. Romans 11, 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable. Are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That is a very good comment by Paul. That God's judgments, his ways are unsearchable. They are inscrutable. But there is one, according to John and the other authors of the New Testament, who knows the mind of God, and that is Jesus. None can make true wisdom known except For him. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this same one who knows the mind of God also knows our minds and our hearts. A few weeks ago, we learned in Psalm 139 how God knows our innermost thoughts. In our words, before we even speak them, John 2.25 tells us that Jesus knew what was in the heart of the men and women that were there gathered around him. That's why he did not give more to them or reveal more to them. And we hear that and and see that repeatedly throughout the Gospels and how people are always amazed at what he knows and how he knows that they are thinking and wondering. The fact that he knows us so well Is part of what makes his counsel so wonderful. And it's what makes him a perfect counselor. Hebrews 2, 17 reminds us, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered what we are suffered when tempted, he is able to make those who are being Help those who are being tempted themselves, right? And part of the good news in Isaiah's proclamation that to us a child is born is that in being born and being made like his brothers in every respect, including experiencing birth and growth and life and obedience and temptation and suffering, he is able to help us and be our counselor. The best counselors do several important things. One, they understand our true needs. Our true issues through careful listening and patient consideration and knowledge of the human heart. We've already seen how Jesus understands those things. Two, the best counselors don't just give us answers. They help us to understand these same things about ourselves. Jesus helps us to understand our own minds and hearts. And he does that by both giving us his spirit and by giving us his word. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus told the disciples in the upper room, according to John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so we have not only received the Spirit, but we have also been given God's Word, which as 2 Timothy 3 says is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Word teaches us to think clearly, to see things from God's perspective. It reproves our sin-biased thinking. And motives. It corrects us by teaching us right thoughts and motives. It trains us to recognize those things in ourselves, point us towards the next step in our sanctification. Those are all attributes of good counseling. And while we live in this world, our most powerful enemy is not of flesh and blood, but of spirit, according to Ephesians 6. And, and since most of our worst problems are actually spiritual, a victorious life is only possible when the Spirit of God is with us, working in us, instructing us by His Word. That's why we constantly must seek help from the wonderful Counselor, through His Spirit, by His Word. We cannot simply tune into the plausible arguments that men and women would offer us. Jesus Himself clearly says in John fifteen five, You can do nothing apart from me. And I like what Sinclair Ferguson writes. He says, Thankfully, God in his common grace has embedded into the very structure of the world the resources that make possible the discovery of many remedies, including pharmaceutical antidotes for our physical ailments. He is the ultimate source of all true medical, surgical, and psychiatric help. But if our fundamental problem, Ferguson says, is that we are in deep spiritual darkness... The antidote must be spiritual light, not just pharmaceutical prescription. What we need most of all is a counselor that will give us light on the ultimate causes of our condition and point us to its remedy. Only this will enable us to see who we are, where we are, the nature of our situation, and a pathway out of it. So I agree with those words. The third thing that the best counselors do is help us to discover and apply Biblical answers. And then they don't just recommend or cooperatively develop solutions. They also promise to pray, to follow up, to offer encouragement. So with regard to discovering biblical solutions, often this ability comes from the counselor's own experience, right? But Jesus, therefore, then is the perfect counselor in this way. We saw how Hebrews says that Jesus was made like us in order that he might sympathize with us in our weaknesses, But let's not forget that he succeeded where we all fail. Where every counselor, earthly counselor you might seek, has failed. Thus he knows best how to approach every situation. He knew what it was to be wronged, to be sinned against, to be tired, to be lonely, to be disappointed, to be betrayed. But he never once sinned in his response. You're not going to get the type of solutions that are shaded or partly polluted by sinful responses. You're going to find that Jesus was never bitter. He was never unforgiving. He was never sinfully angry, never selfish, and therefore his counsel is always going to be in light of what he did as he faced those situations. Was it time that he spent in prayer? Was it dying to his own will and doing only what he saw the Father doing? Was it knowing intimately God's word and applying it in every situation, in every temptation particularly? Yes. All of these and more, and that's the counsel that he gives us. There are many times in my own counseling that I'm stuck because I don't fully understand a situation or have not experienced it myself. That's not the case with Jesus. And even when I think I do know how to help in a particular situation, there's a good chance I don't (laughs) because I still struggle with my own sin. But Jesus always gives wise and good counsel and right counsel that is tailored to our specific situation and need and moment. And it's unfailing, it is flawless, it is always practical and prudent. There's no problem that he has to study up on or refer to a professional. He is never lacking an answer to satisfy your soul. And he will tell you the truth. Right? He doesn't just tell you what you want to hear. He knows what you need to hear. And he'll tell you what you need to hear, even if you don't want to hear it. And it will be the truth about your sin, about your need for confession and repentance and about what you can do next to joyfully endure not only the consequences of past sin, but also how not to be bitter in the moment, how not to give into unrighteous anger or discontentment or any number of things. How to make better decisions in the future. Another author writes, think of the thief on the cross or the demonized man who lived in the tombs and had to be chained up to keep from hurting himself or others. Think of the woman who was brought to Jesus having been caught in the act of adultery. Think of Nicodemus, the religious leader, came to Jesus at night for counsel. Think of the rich young ruler wanting to know how to have eternal life. Jesus gave each of those exactly the counsel they needed, even though it was sometimes disappointing and sometimes challenging. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't just give us the painful truth, right? There are people that are like that who will give you the painful truth and then just leave you with your mouth open, right? The best of counselors offer to come alongside of you, to encourage you, to advocate for you, to intercede for you. And that's what Jesus does. And there are several things to take away from that. First, Jesus is given this title, Wonderful Counselor, because it is one of the things that we most need. When Isaiah spoke those words, for to us a child is given, he's proclaiming the news of God's help and salvation. He's saying, this is going to meet our needs. This is, this is going to solve our problem. But if you think you already have everything solved, If you don't think that you have a need for counsel or find yourself being led astray and convinced by the persuasive words of men who, as David was saying earlier, say, no, you're perfectly fine. You don't need anything. Then you'll not go to the wonderful counselor. Proverbs 26.12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for him than for a fool more hope for a fool, I would say, than for him. So do you acknowledge your need for a wonderful counselor? Second, and this is related to the last point, where are you turning for counsel? It's certainly all right to seek wisdom and advice from godly men and women whom you trust. There's nothing wrong with biblical counsel from men and women. But throughout, you are to still be turning to the wonderful counselor, by reading his word, spending time in prayer, asking him for direction. Third, heed his counsel. A lot of people in times of need seek Jesus out as a wonderful counselor, but then don't quite like what he has to say. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. In other words, listen Don't keep justifying. Don't keep making excuses. When he tells you the painful but helpful truth, hear what he has to say. And when your mind and heart keep telling you that it's all right to be angry because your spouse keeps doing the same offensive thing over and over again, for example, but then the wonderful counselor says, do not sin in your anger, that it's noble to overlook an offense, to not return evil for evil, or that a gentle answer turns away wrath, to whom will you listen? To yourself or to the Lord? And if you were here when we went through Proverbs, you may remember this relevant passage all the way at the beginning for Proverbs 1. The wisdom, Christ is wisdom incarnate as the wonderful counselor, cries out in the street, in the markets. She raises her voice at the head of the noisy streets, all the plausible, persuasive shouts of men saying, listen to me, listen to me. And she cries out at the entrance of the city gates and says, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will you scoffers delight in scoffing and fools hate knowledge if you will turn at my reproof? Behold, I will pour my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse to listen. Have stretched out my hand and no one... Has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. And they will seek me diligently, but not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel, despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat of the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster." There's no no real middle way, is there, in that? We don't want to be the simple ones and the fools of this passage. We don't want to be turning away at the Lord's reproof. He says he's made his words known to us. He's called to us. But it's loud, isn't it? It's noisy. And too often we have ears that are trained to hear the things closest to us, especially the things that we like to hear in the moment. But God says the complacency of fools will destroy them, but whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease. That's where I want to be. I want to be in that second category. And then last, send others to this wonderful counselor. Many of you are given regular opportunities to speak into the lives of others, but you are not the wonderful counselor. Like the rest of us, your knowledge of wisdom and counsel is limited, and really, it's best when it's obviously based not only upon the wonderful counselor's own words, but when it actually points people to the one who has the answers for them. See, ultimately, the best of earthly counselors are the ones that admit that they, too, are sinners, that they, too, have struggled in these various things, and... That they have the answers, not because they are the smartest, best people to give them things, not because they've arrived, but because they know where to find the truth. And that's the Wonderful Counselor. My final thought on this this topic is that what the Wonderful Counselor offers us is ultimately not good advice only, but even better, it's good news. What's the difference, you ask? Well, when you give advice, you give counsel about what a person should do, and you urge others to make behavioral and mental changes, and then you step back so that the person can go and do those things. That's good advice. But news, by contrast, is not about what should be done, but what has already been done. It recognizes that somebody already acted. And I like what one author writes. He says, if there's a great army coming towards a town, what that town needs is military advisors in that situation. Someone should explain that the earthworks and, and trenches should go over there, the marksmen should go up there, and the tanks must go down there. However, if a great king has already intercepted and defeated the invading army, what does the town need? It doesn't need advisors, it needs messengers. And the Greek word he says for messengers is angels. And the messengers do not say here is something that you have to do, rather they say stop fleeing. Stop building fortifications. Stop trying to save yourselves. And sometimes they say stop acting like everything's okay because you have no idea what just happened. This is me adding to that. Sorry, I'm now adding to what he said. Because something has already been done, and that changes everything. Well, I said earlier that Jesus does not just stand apart from us and cheer us on from the sidelines. He doesn't give us good, helpful advice and then tell us to go do it. He gives us his spirit, he gives us his word, but that's not the whole picture. He not only helps us in the present and future, that's for the advice part, but he has also already helped us in the past. That's the good news part. That's the whole point about the Christmas story. Tim Keller says, There's no moral of the story to the nativity. The shepherds, the parents of Jesus, the wise men are not being held up primarily as examples. These narratives are not telling you what you should do, but what God has done. The birth of God into the world is a gospel, an announcement. You don't save yourself. God has come to save you. And so he concludes, I would argue that other religions and many churches, when they talk about salvation, understand it and proclaim it as something you have to wrestle and struggle for that you have to perform. It comes only if you pray or obey or transform your consciousness. But the Christian gospel is different. The founders of the great religions of the world say in one way or another, I am here to show you the way to spiritual reality do this. But Jesus Christ comes and says to us, I am spiritual reality. You could never come up to me, and therefore I had to come down to you. And those are good thoughts. Of course, Christmas is just part of the story, and the Gospels propel through to the cross and to the resurrection and to the ascension, but the totality of it all, the good news of the gospel, is what makes Jesus as a wonderful counselor different than every other counselor. Jesus is the reality. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that means that his counsel is not primarily about self improvement and inspiration and how tos, it is about relationship and faith and dying. Dying to the attempt to improve ourselves without him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has every answer, that he is the answer? He is the wonderful counselor. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for this great news that Isaiah gave to your people you're people who were in a very different situation in some ways than we are today. We are far worse, I think, in some respects. We have so much. We're the wealthiest nation in many respects in the world technology to do whatever we want at a, a moment's notice but we are as at risk we are as sinfully following after idolatry as a nation as Israel was in Isaiah's time and so the good news of for us to for to us a child is given is also blessed news to us today let us pray that people would hear that news, and not just the people who are lost, but Lord, that we also would recognize what a, a glorious gift that we have been given in a wonderful counselor as Jesus is, and it's in his name that we pray, amen.